Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here all alone once again to do another experimental show. Now, I'm excited. Why, you may be wondering. Well, I got off work early today, which is to say I got off on time, because for the last month or so, I have been working overtime quite a bit, which is great. It's good for the pocketbook. It's good for all that sorts of thing. The trouble is I have very little time for anything else. And so when I got off work early today, I was like, ah, yes, I still have all of this energy. I have maybe an extra hour at least. Um, I'm going to go record something. And so on the drive home, I was thinking to myself about some of the things I've been seeing out there in the world. And the one thing that I kept thinking about was uh, the labor shortage. And believe me, that's been on my mind quite a bit. Because around where I work, it's very obvious that we're missing people. Um, full disclosure, I'm not going to share every detail, but so I guess it's not full disclosure. Some disclosure, where I work is, you know, it's a warehouse and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of different jobs you can do there and lots of different kinds of people doing different kinds of jobs. It's all a lot of physical work, which I enjoy because the idea of sitting behind a desk again, ever again, frightens the hell out of me. Um, what was I saying again? Ah, yes. <laughs> yes, I, I do a job that requires a lot of work, real work, not just sitting around pretending to work, which, again, I think is great. But it's been crazy, and everyone knows why. It's not because where I work is particularly difficult or suffering in some particular way. It's that everybody out there right now who works in a place like this or who works in well, just about any job that's, eh, not an office job, maybe? There's a labor shortage. And this is this is uh, manifested itself where I work with, there's simply not being enough people to do everything. And it's sort of pushing people to their limit, but that's happening everywhere. You know, I'm hearing stories from all kinds of different places, including, you know, businesses that I'm very close to where it's just hard to find people. So I asked a friend, I've actually kind of been running a little bit of a survey experiment. I've been asking people around me of different classes and income levels and, you know, levels of education and that sort of thing. I've been trying to get a survey of what they think the problem is. And, you know, really, really smart people, really, really, um, you know, hardworking people, um, rich people, uh, lower income people, you know, the rest. It's, I've been trying to get a, an idea of why this is happening. And there's a couple of reasons. And, um, you know, the big one that I hear a lot is they simply aren't paying people enough. And there's probably some truth to that. But I've heard that mostly from low-income people who count the hours and count every dollar that they make, which they have to, who can blame them. And what I've been hearing from on high from the higher class peoples is that nobody wants to work. And that they think that the um, the shortage is because of the the dole, basically. So um, on my drive home, uh, you know, my body's aching because it's it's been a it's been a rough month. Um, that's not a complaint. I personally love it. Not everyone does, and I know that I know it makes me kind of weird that I love working really hard. Um, but it there does come a point where even I, being the psychopath that I am, who you know likes just, I mean, likes working, there comes a time where even I feel 
a little like I could burn out at this if I keep going at this rate. And the thing is, I'm not even like in one of the in one of the positions where I work that's even the most demanding. I mean, what I do is I I essentially lift heavy boxes and unload trailers and things like that at night. You know, that's hard. And, you know, climb flights of stairs, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, but I'm only there for, you know, even overtime for me is like, wow, whole 10 hours. There are people who work where I work, who work 12 hours every shift doing some of the hardest labor I can imagine doing. And that makes me feel kind of weak, but at the same time, I I don't know how they do it. Superhuman, I suppose. But anyway, I digress. It got me thinking. It got me thinking about the one book that I've been sort of meddling with for probably three years, um, Road to Wigan Pier. And believe it or not, I've actually recorded bits of this book to put out um, for the show already, but I haven't been able to because I've been so busy. I mean, I've got a bunch of side projects. I'm I'm my own man. I, I do a lot of stuff on the side. And, you know, there's a lot of people who appear to be, you know, married to their job. It is all they do. It's, it's you know, they, they work and then they go home and play for a little bit and then they go to bed and then they get up and they work. And that to them is how, how life ought to be. Like, that's just how, how they, that's how they like things. I'm being, being how I am, kind of scatterbrained and excitable and, you know, enthusiastic about lots of different things. It's hard for me to see myself as like, um, having only one thing that I do. I'm kind of a shotgunner. I like lots of things going on. Anyway, so I guess what I would like to do, I've brought up, I've got two things I want to read to you, uh, because there are two things that I thought of, uh, thinking about the current, the current difficulties with labor. Wigenpeer's one of them, and then there's an essay by G.K. Chesterton, because you know I can't help myself. I just love G.K. Chesterton. Sue me. Um, there's a bit from Wigenpeer I want to read to you, uh, because I know if you're like me, you like to, if you're doing a job like me, you literally will run out of things to listen to. I mean, with the internet, you're still going to run out of things to listen to. So I figure I might as well read parts of these and comment on them. So you can get an idea of where my thinking went with this. Not that, I mean, (laughs) since you asked. (laughs) All right. And I just, I guess I I suppose I should make it clear. This is not a complaint. In fact, I'm reading these two things to give a perspective. Because these days, this day and age, a lot of people can get sort of sucked into a sort of slave or master mindset. If you're not the master, then you are the slave. And I think that's, I think that's a, an understandable perspective, especially considering what we're about to read. But I don't know if it's that simple, and I'm not going to, because personally, I don't subscribe to that. Yeah, yeah, I go work for the other guy who sits on his big, high, fancy chair, and, you know, he, he's, he's laughing all the way to the bank because he's making so much more than you. And... I don't really measure the quality of my life by how much money I put in the bank. A lot of people do. It's understandable, but I'm, again, kind of weird. Uh, I was listening to a podcast actually recently with a couple of people talking about stock trades, and they were so passionate about how much money they were making and the bets they were making. And I was just like, oh, I mean, great. So it's a game to you. For me, it's, it's not a game. It's like if I can get enough to, to eat and have a place to sleep, 
I'm pretty much happy. And as long as I can sit behind this mic when I get a chance, I will, because that's what makes me happy. I'm not, I don't think of money as a score. And lots of people do, and that's fine. I'm no judgment for me. And a lot of people have to work like crazy because they got kids and other responsibilities and that sort of thing. No judgment for me. I mean, because I fully understand that I'm in a privileged position in the sense that I don't have kids and I'm not married. And, you know, it's easy for me to put away all my income and save and be like, what are you guys doing? I understand that there's a ton of factors at play here, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but I am going to offer a little bit of perspective, not just my own, but G.K. Chesterton's and, and uh, George Orwell's, a little bit on class distinction and money. And I picked these two because they came from around the same time in history, and they came from around generally the same place, which is, you know, England. So anyway, without further ado, I think I'll start with Weigand Peer. And please forgive me, I didn't like specifically dig through every single word of this. Um, I just sort of, I picked a couple of pieces that I thought would be relevant. And you know me, I can read just about any, anything and just and keep talking. Um, let's see here. <clears throat> so this is from page 42. Uh, on the PDF, I have a road to Wigan Pier. And this is George Orwell writing in, in his, his uh, narrative style. And just to be clear, George Orwell is the one who wrote 1984 and Animal Farm, but he also wrote this, and he wrote a lot of other very interesting things. Um, so we'll just, we'll just go for this and see how it goes. All right, here we go. In Wigan, I stayed for a while with a miner who was suffering from nystigmus. Nystigmus. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Please forgive me. He could see across the room, but not much further. He had been drawing compensation of 29 shillings a week for the past nine months, but the colliery company were now talking of putting him on partial compensation of 14 shillings a week. It all depended on whether the doctor passed him as fit for light work on top. Even if the doctor did pass him, there would, needless to say, be no light work available. But he could draw the dole, and the company would have saved itself 15 shillings a week. Watching this man go to the colliery to draw his compensation, I was struck by the profound differences that are still made by status. Here was a man who had been half-blinded in one of the most useful of all jobs, and was drawing a pension to which he had a perfect right, if anybody has a right to anything. Yet he could not, so to speak, demand this pension. He could not, for instance, draw it when and how he wanted it. He had to go to the colliery once a week at a time named by the company, and when he got there he was kept waiting about for hours in the cold wind. For all I know, he was also expected to touch his cap and show gratitude to whoever paid him. At any rate, he had to waste an afternoon and spend sixpence on bus fares. It is very different for a member of the bourgeoisie, even though such a down-at-heel member as I am. I'm sorry, even such a down-at-heel member as I am. Even when I am on the verge of starvation, I have certain rights attaching to my bourgeois status. I do not earn much more than a miner earns, but I do at least get it paid into my bank with a, in a gentlemanly manner and can still draw it out when I choose. And even when my account is exhausted, the bank people are passably polite. This business of petty inconvenience and indignity, of being kept waiting about, of having to do everything at other people's convenience, is inherent in working-class life. A thousand influences constantly press a working man down into a passive role. He does not act, he is acted upon. 
He feels himself the slave of a mysterious authority and has a firm conviction that they will never allow him to do this, that, and the other. Once I was hop-picking, sorry, once when I was hop-picking, I asked the sweated pickers, they earned something under sixpence an hour, why they did not form a union. I was told immediately that they would never allow it. But who were they, I asked. Nobody seemed to know, but evidently they were omnipotent. A person of bourgeois origin goes through life with some expectation of getting what he wants within reasonable limits. Hence the fact that in times of stress, educated people tend to come to the front. They are no more gifted than the others, and their education is generally quite useless in itself. But they are accustomed to a certain amount of deference, and consequently have the cheek necessary to a commander. <laughs> I like that. That they will come to the front seems to be taken for granted, always and everywhere. In the Sagare's History of the Commune, there is an interesting passage describing the shootings that took place after the Commune had been suppressed. Man, I'll have to look into that. The authorities were shooting the ringleaders, and as they did not know who the ringleaders were, they were picking them out on the principle that those of better class would be the ringleaders. An officer walked down a line of prisoners, picking out likely-looking types. One man was shot because he was wearing a watch, another because he had an intelligent face. I should not like to be shot for having an intelligent face, but I do agree that in almost any revolt, the leaders would tend to be people who could pronounce their H's. <laughs> so he's basically saying that if there is to be any kind of like workers' revolution of any kind um, in any place, naturally leader-like people would find their way to the front, and almost by almost by necessity. It wouldn't be some, you know, romanticized version of your blue-collar worker. It would probably be the strongest-looking or maybe most influential of the blue-collar workers. And even then, probably the ones with a little bit of extra education or, or even um, a leadership ability. Who knows? I like that bit because Orwell talks about they. And they is such an interesting thing to me. And I've heard, I've heard a lot of people, you hear it a lot, people say, well, they wouldn't allow it. They, wouldn't, they would never let us do that. And they'll come and get you if you do such a thing, right? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of emphasis on this, this, this ominous they. And believe me, I've heard lots of ideas about who they are. And in history, you see a lot of people who blame a they. They blame the government. They blame... Uh, reptilians, they blame, <laughs> they blame the devil, they blame all kinds of things, and there's a they, there's always a they there. And it occurs to me that maybe they is never anyone specific, but more like an office that someone fills, um, almost naturally. Uh, every, every prey animal has its natural predator, it seems, and if they don't, they're very lucky, uh, <laughs> But it seems that in most of the world, there are predators and there are prey. And prey speak of they, don't you think? I mean, doesn't that make sense? Do predators think, speak of they? I mean, if you imagine, just imagine, okay? It's a far side comic. You've got a bunch of wolves standing around and they're talking about a they. Well, who's keeping down the wolf? I don't know. Typically, wolves, <laughs> when they talk about their they, <laughs> this is getting really funny. They're talking about the sheep that they're going to go get. Well, they went over there today. You know, a hunter talks about they as in the herd. But a herd animal 
talks about they in terms of the hunter, which is interesting to think. And we could talk about class parasitism all we want. Uh, we could talk about all of that sort of thing. And there's the reason conspiracy theories exist as a, you know, bec is because they is hard to identify. The they. <laughs> it's hard to identify. Personally, I think that they is a natural concept within all classes. Every class has a, has a they that keeps them down. You know, the lower, the, the, uh, lower class in Weigand Pier, for example, are so detached from the people who run the corporation, as it's called uh, in, in this book, uh, that they barely even know who's in charge. Probably when the workers were exposed to somebody who actually was in charge, there would be sort of a let's keep our distance kind of feeling. For example, in most of my jobs that I've ever had, when the boss shows up, unless you're like really, really good friends with them, the bigger the company, the more magnanimous their entry seems. When it's a small work, you know, working environment, you know, not an Amazon, um, not, a, not a Walmart, when the big guy shows up at the small place, there isn't so much a feeling of better not better not stand out or I want to stand out to him. It's more like, oh, there he is. What can I do today, sir? Like, that's how it works. But the bigger the company, um, the bigger the person who shows up. It's almost as if they have like a invisible influence on people around them. Uh, for example, let, let's just, let's just use, um, well, actually, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I try to keep that kind of talk off my show. But you know what I mean. When the big guy shows up, you start acting differently. You start acting, you know, more polite. You tuck in your shirt. You make sure your area looks nice so that if they walk by, they won't, they will either notice or they won't notice. Because a lot of people just want to go unseen. And a lot of people want to stand out to the big man because he's got the, he's got the contacts and he can make the calls to get you a better job because he can, he might just see what kind of a genius you actually are if he just spent five minutes with you. He would know for sure, wouldn't he? And that's, you know, that's a dynamic that exists even more strongly the more diverse and the larger the working group, in my humble opinion. This is just, these are just things I've noticed in the various workplaces I've been in. But everybody's got a they. And they have been, at least in my opinion, they have been sort of less invisible the last couple of years, at least in, at least in you know, the political sphere, but also in the invisible political sphere. You know, people are starting to wonder. They're starting to wonder who the hell is actually pulling the strings here. Or maybe they're not. Maybe it's just me because I'm a naturally curious person. But at a certain point, people start wondering, just why is it, just why is it that I can't take an extra two minutes on that break and I'm going to get chewed out for that if I do? Just why is it that this policy that's been instantiated, for example, the, uh, the sad chamber at Amazon, which may or may not be a rumor, I really don't know, um, the quiet room or whatever that they have off to the side for people with anxiety, and who wouldn't be anxious in a work environment like that, let's be honest. But who came up with that idea? Was it somebody who works on the floor and knows how stressful it is? Or is it somebody who sits in an office and tries to think up ways to 
basically make the workplace that's intolerable more tolerable. And I'm sure you might be able to hear my computer rumbling right now. That will be solved soon, by the way. I've actually been able to, thanks to the overtime, upgrade to a silent PC. So we won't have this problem in the future. And if you can't hear it, great, even better. But one of the distinct things that I have noticed throughout this last couple of years, and especially now during the labor shortage, is that the management and the workers don't understand one another. Uh, and it's almost as if management, and this isn't just one workplace, I, I speak, I know a lot of people who are in the, on the other side of things. They aren't the people lifting the boxes and loading the trailers. They're the people managing the numbers and dealing with HR and making sure the office people are happy and trying to every now and then, you know, get some freebies for the workers to, you know, keep them, to keep them motivated during this really difficult time for everybody, by the way. It can be really easy, in my opinion, it can be, and this is, again, all my opinion, it can be really easy for people who, like me, who are on, who are on the floor to get mad and shake our fists at the guys who are not on the floor. But the conversations I've had about the labor shortage have distinctly reminded me that, oh, yes, there are classes. And yes, they do think differently. And is it their fault? I don't know. There's a lot of people who are raised, you know, in, in privilege and wealth and that sort of thing. And they just have these expectations. And while, you know, I've never had like a, a problem with I have a I have a very unique situation in that sense where I've seen both sides of things. I mean, certainly I've had privileges without a doubt, but also I've I've always expected to work hard and just get dirty when I'm working, which is probably why I'm so happy where I am right now. Is because before I had a desk job, a lot of desk jobs actually, and when I left them and got into what I do now, I would I've never been happier because I lost a bunch of weight. I feel really good. I'm tired. I sleep great. Um, you know, I solved insomnia, which by just working to the point where I was tired and going home and being like, wow, that was a good day's work, showering off actual dirt, not just the grease that formed on my face because I was slouched in front of a computer munching on potato chips, like big difference. So I guess what I'm getting at is there are definite cultural differences, um, and these don't seem to go away. And, you know, in history, and I know it's a history podcast, so I have to tie it in, but it's already tied in enough. And plus, this is another experiment, so I'm not sure I have to. It's my show. I do what I want. Throughout history, there have always been classes. And the elimination of class is simply, in my opinion, the covering up of class. If we're all calling com Comrade Stalin, Comrade Stalin, to pretend that he's still a comrade just like us, he just happens to have all the special stuff. Um, all that is is a lie. That's all it is. It's, it's just a lie. He is, Stalin did have different privileges. You cannot tell me he didn't. I mean, on paper, maybe he was just a comrade. I don't know how it worked back then. I didn't live in the Soviet Union. But, you know, we call these people comrade. And they're clearly not from the same cloth. And one thing that I do think is real, um, that I never would have admitted to before, but after experiencing all that I've experienced in my early and mid-twenties, um, some people are simply born noble. And it, it can happen regardless of, of um, wealth status and class status. There are some people who are simply born and they think in a way that you would, you would probably ascribe to a person who is, you know, well 
to do and educated and all the rest. You know these people. You know these people. It's the wise janitor meme. Um, the guy you know who gave you great advice who just does a normal job. And I think that's because class has multiple different um, categories. There's, in my opinion, there's wealth class. There's sort of wisdom class. There's a char charisma class, power class. There's all these different sort of stratifications you can go through in, in uh, status and that sort of thing. There's some people who are born poor who are extremely attractive. And there's some people who are born attractive who are extremely wealthy, but they've got, you know, a physical ailment of some kind that may kill them by the time they're 35. It's like stats and a character design um, before you start a video game. Like, that's how I think it works. And obviously some people are born with no, almost no advantages at all. And, you know, God be with those people because I really, I really can't imagine such things. And of course, that's why we have charity and all the rest is to help people who can't help themselves. And of course, that's good and everything. But I, let's, let's draw this back in. Basically, it's my conclusion that throughout history, we have had different names for people of these different classes. And the sort of secular materialist way of classifying people is by um, actual like monetary wealth, the number of cars you have, um, the type, the type of uh, class you sit in on the plane, that sort of thing. And we have also got a bunch of people pretending that class doesn't exist. Like, look at that politician. He sits in coach. He's just like me. I think all of that is just posing. And we all kind of know what class we are. Uh, real deep down, we know where we belong, and we know we know what we're worth, you know. And I know, I mean, okay, maybe not everybody, but I know for me, like when I realized, wow, okay, so in this realm, I'm basically a worthless work unit. In this realm, I'm a valued employee. In this realm, I'm a valued, you know, friend. And in this realm, you know, fill in the blank. There's a lot of different roles that I can fill. And in each one of those roles, I notice that I have a they. I have a, you know, there's, there's that guy who's, you know, can lift more, or there's that, that other guy who drives a cooler car than me. Um, there's all these different they's. And I think the factor there about the they is that you really don't want to get caught up too much on who they are, because then you're sort of obsessed. And being obsessed with something, I mean, think about it, being obsessed with one particular person say you're you know you're young and you've seen this really cute girl across the room and you're like oh my god I, I gotta talk to her you give her all this power because now if she figures it out by the way she'll she can be a very very benevolent or evil god goddess so to speak uh if she figures that out it's good and it goes both ways don't get me wrong people can sense when other people are giving them their power right so when for example, a boss, say one that I've worked under, appears in the realm, suddenly I feel myself go, all right, be careful. Don't do the wrong thing. Say the right stuff. Don't say that thing. Don't say that thing. You know what I mean. You become hyper aware of your status. And it may not be fair. You know, you may go home and be like, ah, guy, he's just, he's just a short little bastard and he shouldn't be running this place. I could do it so much better, you know. But when he's around, you know. You know what you do. You either fall in line, you can sneer behind his back or whatever. But if that guy gives you an order nine times out of ten, you're going to be like, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. You're going to just jump right into the role. And you know you will. And there's a lot of people who want to resist that. And that, that goes without saying. There's a lot of people who, who don't like that kind of thing. 
Now, the problem we run into is when these classes try to essentially prescribe to one another what they should do, right? So my friends who say things like, well, if they simply paid more, it would fix, it would fix a lot of problems. That's true. If, if everybody was getting paid, you know, 25 bucks an hour or whatever, that would fix the problem of I don't have enough to feed my family when you go home. But even that, after a while, you're still there, you know, well, why can't they, why can't they replace these, um, you know, these standing mats so my knees don't get hurt during the day? Why can't they fix the vehicles so that, you know, or the, the um, you know, the forklifts or whatever so that they can move at full speed and so that they can lift all that they're supposed to lift? And why can't they do this? Why can't they do that? Well, it is a give and take. And you can see this from the other side, of course which is, well, why don't people want to work? They just want to sit around and collect their money from the government, and they don't want to work. Well, if they can get money and money is all you're offering, why wouldn't they do get it for free? You see, this is a difficult question, because it's not that people don't want to work. Generally, people do want to do stuff with their time, generally. I mean, obviously, you've got some people who just, they really just like taking the dole, and that's, that's fine. And of course, with what with Wigan Pier, what we just read, Orwell's objection is not so much that there's a dole, and it's not that there's a man who needs it. It's that the corporation makes him take a bus and show up at a certain time and almost tip his cap to get what he's owed from workers' comp. And that's where we run into some problems. When the upper class gets the idea that it's smarter than the lower class, that it by necessity of being upper class, understands the lower class as if they had to go through high school just like you to graduate into the ascended beings that they are. And they look back down on you and they say, oh, the poor thing. It, need, it doesn't understand. If only they understood how hard it is to go to all these meetings and eat catered lunches every day. And if only they understood how, 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 how unconsciously dirty they are. If only they understood, if only they understood the higher things. If only they could see what we have to decide, the difficult decisions we have to make every day. You know, they're free from that. And that's true. Because the responsibility of higher classes is indeed much higher, but they're also much more removed from well, they're much more removed from the realities of the um, class that you might say is below them if you're speaking in a strictly hierarchical matter, which is natural for me, even though it might be wrong. We talk about people who have a higher income as though they have more to offer, but we all know that's not exactly true. They may have more specialized skills that they can offer, but we also know that if you were to stick them on the floor of the, you know, the warehouse that they run or whatever, they would probably go home with a sore back because they, they're not, they haven't been doing it, right? And that's not a, that's not a, that's not a, um, you know, like an indictment upon them. They just do different things. But the problem you run into is when the classes are at war with each other. When that guy gets tired of having to take the bus and show up at the right time to get what he's rightfully owned by the company at which he was injured. You know, that guy gets tired of only getting, a, you know, a paltry sum because he just simply can't work. And there's people who get tired of having to deal with, you know, a clamoring mass of, um, you know, workers who just 
can't seem to be satisfied and also don't even know what they want and don't seem to even have any representation. It's just this mess of people who are generally unhappy with how things are going at the workplace. Well, I think this last year we learned that, well, we learned, we learned a lot of things about work, um, but most people can work from home now. And the people who really do go in and do the difficult work, they really are doing something that's absolutely necessary. And the dreams of the upper elite, you know, of, a, of an entirely automated working class, well, that doesn't appear to be exactly around the corner as, as of right now. Um, there's, still, there's still too much detail required in a lot of work. And you can, believe me, you can automate a lot of things, but you can't automate everything. At some point, you need a group of people who are going to be considered at the bottom who will have to keep everything running. These are just, I guess these are just rants. So I'll just, I'll just rein it in because we've got one more to read and it's a little bit longer. Um, this is a, uh, what you might call a Christian or a Catholic point of view on uh, essentially sociol sociology applied to the so-called working class. And this is one of my favorite essays by Chesterton. Um, it's called In Topsy-Turvy Land. And I'll just, I'll just read this and... Uh, Let's see, we're coming up on 30 minutes here, so that, that should be perfect. All right, and I won't, I, I won't read it in an old, um, like an old uh, British accent, even though I really want to. I think it would ruin it. Or maybe not. Maybe, maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know. I'll just read it. Here we go. <clears throat> Actually, first, let me, let, me, let me take a little sip of this ice water. I have been working so very hard. <laughs> it's not a complaint. I love it. Uh, yes. Anyway, <clears throat> In Topsy-Turvy Land by G.K. Chesterton. Last week, and please forgive for somebody, somebody's walking around above me. That's just how it's going to be. Soon, soon, soon. We will have less noise. It will all be good. But anyway. <clears throat> Last week, in an idle metaphor, I took the tumbling of trees and the secret energy of the wind as typical of the visible world moving under the violence of the invisible. I took this metaphor merely because I happened to be writing the article in a wood. Nevertheless, now that I return to Fleet Street, which seems to me, I confess, much better and more poetical than all the wild woods in the world, I am strangely haunted by this accidental comparison. The people's figures seem a forest... Hmm... Ah, yes. The people's figures seem a forest, and their soul a wind. All the human personalities which speak or signal to me seem to have this fantastic character of the fringe of the forest against the sky. That man that talks to me, what is he but an, art but an articulate tree? That driver of a van who waves his hands wild at me to tell me to get out of his way, what is he but a bunch of branches stirred and swayed by a spiritual wind? a sylvan object that I can continue to, con to contemplate with calm. That policeman who lifts his hand to warn three omnibuses of the peril that they run in encountering my person, what is he but a shrub shaken for a moment with that blast of human law, which is a thing stronger than anarchy? Gradually this impression of the woods wears off. But this black-and-white contrast between the visible and invisible, this deep sense that the one essential belief is belief in the invisible as against the visible, is suddenly and sensationally brought back to my mind. Exactly at the moment when Fleet Street has grown most familiar, that is, most bewildering and bright, 
my eye catches a poster of vivid violet, on which I see written in large black letters these remarkable words. Should shop assistants marry? When I saw those words, everything might just as well have turned upside down. The men in Fleet Street might have been walking about on their hands. The cross of St. Paul's might have been hanging in the air upside down. For I realize that I have really come into a topsy-turvy country. I have come into the country where men do definitely believe that the waving of the trees makes the wind. That is to say, they believe that the material circumstances, however black and twisted, are more important than the spiritual realities, however powerful and pure. Should shop assistants marry? I am puzzled to think what some periods and schools of human history would have made of such a question. The ascetics of the East, or of some periods of the early church, would have thought that the question meant, are not shop assistants too saintly, too much of another world even to feel the emotions of the sexes? But I suppose that is not what the purple poster means. In some pagan cities, it might have meant, shall slaves be, I'm sorry, shall slaves so vile as shop assistants even be allowed to propagate their abject race? But I suppose that is not what purple poster meant. We must face, I fear, the full insanity of what it does mean. It does really mean that a section of the human race is asking whether the primary relations of the two human sexes are particularly good for modern shops. The human race is asking whether Adam and Eve are entirely suitable for Marshall and Snellgrove. If this is not topsy-turvy, I cannot imagine what would be. We ask whether the universal institution will improve our, please God, temporary institution. Yet I have known many such questions. For instance, I have known a man to ask seriously, does democracy help the empire? Which is like saying, is art favorable to frescoes? I say that there are many such questions asked, but if the world ever runs short of them, I can suggest a large number of questions of precisely the same kind based on precisely the same principle. Do feet improve boots? Is bread better when eaten? Should hats have heads in them? Do people spoil a town? Do walls ruin new wallpapers? Should neckties enclose necks? Do hand... <laughs> Do hands hurt walking sticks? Does burning destroy firewood? Is cleanliness good for soap? Can cricket really improve cricket bats? Shall we take brides with our wedding rings? And a hundred others. Not one of these questions differs at all in an intellectual purport or in intellectual value from the question which I have quoted from the purple poster or from any of the typical questions asked by half of the earnest economists of our time. All the questions they ask are of this character. They are all tinged with the same initial absurdity. They do not ask if the means is suited to the end. They all ask, with profound and penetrating skepticism, if the end is suited to the means. They do not ask if the tail is suited to the dog. They all ask whether a dog is, by the highest artistic canons, the most ornamental appendage which can, be, which can be put at the end of a tail. In short, instead of asking whether our modern arrangement, our streets, trades, bargains, laws, and human life, um, I'm sorry, and concrete institutions are suited to the primal and permanent ideal of a healthy human life. They never admit that a healthy human life into the discussion at all, except suddenly and accidentally at odd moments. 
And then they only ask whether that healthy human life is suited to our streets and trades. Perfection may be attainable or unattainable as an end. It may or may not be possible to talk of imperfection as a means to perfection, but surely it passes toleration to talk of perfection as a means to imperfection. The new Jerusalem may be a reality. It may be a dream. But surely it is too outrageous to say that the new Jerusalem is a reality on the road to Birmingham. Uh, that's, that's Chesterton for you, by the way. He can weave... I mean, he can weave words like crazy. So it can be hard, it can be hard to digest, but believe me, he gets to it at the end. This is the most enormous and at the same time the most secret of the modern tyrannies in materialism. In theory, the thing ought to be simple enough. A really human human being would always put the spiritual thing first. A walking and speaking statue of God finds himself at one particular moment employed as a shop assistant. He has in himself a power of terrible love, a promise of paternity, a thirst for some loyalty that shall unify life. And in the ordinary course of things, he asks himself, how far do the existing conditions of those assisting in shops fit in with my evident and epic destiny in the matter of love and marriage? But here, as I have said, comes in the quiet and crushing power of modern materialism. It prevents him rising in rebellion as he would otherwise do. By perpetually, by perpetually talking about environment and visible things, by perpetually talking about economics and physical necessity, by painting and keeping repainted, a perpetual picture of iron machinery and merciless engines of rails of steel and of towers of stone. Modern materialism at last produces this tremendous impression on the human imagination, this impression in which the truth is stated upside down. At last the result is achieved. The man does not say as he ought to have said, should married men endure being shop assistants? The man says, should shop assistants marry? Triumph has completed the immense illusion of materialism. The slave does not say, Are these chains worthy of me? The slave says scientifically and contentedly, Am I even worthy of these chains? Now, I like that one because I like G.K. Chesterton's flower, flowery language, but I also think he really does boil it down. A lot of people are so afraid. They're so afraid of life. <laughs> They're so afraid of, of uh, and I, I speak for myself partially here, so afraid of losing out on something that we don't even think to live. You know, they call them the golden handcuffs when you're at the top of one of these things, and they call it, you know, another day in the happy place when you're at the bottom of these things. And that's one of one of my coworkers um, says every day he comes in. He says another day in the happy place. I always smile because it, it just makes me laugh. I even found a little a little cup that said, uh, "This is my happy place." I put it on his desk. It was very funny. At least I thought it was. Maybe he thought I was just being stupid. But it really it really does come down to a couple of questions. It's like ah yes I, I need to I need to um, keep this job or all my status goes out the window. If I don't have this job, what will I do with my time? What can I do without this income? What, whatever will I do if I don't have my, my stuff? What, what can I do without my stuff? And I think all of that, a lot of that is a result of this materialism that G.K. Chesterton is identifying here. At the same time, you've got Weigand Pier on the other side where people literally don't have a choice. At least it, they don't know they have a choice. And so they're stuck in these squalid conditions in Weigand Pier where 
you know, people are getting crushed in these mines and left to die because the company can't pay to have them dug out. Now, those, those are true chains. They're just slightly more invisible. Um, I'm sorry, slightly more visible as opposed to the invisible ones of, you know, the, the golden handcuffs at the top. There's a lot of people who work so hard to get to the top of their, their game, to get to the top of their company or whatnot, and when they get there, they find out there's nothing else for them to do and nowhere else for them to go. And lots of people love that. Lots of people love that. When they get there, they're finally like, I finally made it. I'm making that six figures a year. I can finally buy a house and settle down and do things and do things the way they were meant to do. Live in the American dream, that sort of thing. So few make it to that, make it that far. Many people just keep working the job that they have because they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice to quit. Say they've got a couple kids. They can't quit. They have to keep going. If they don't, all kinds of hell could break loose. So one is essentially working out of necessity. And the other is working out of fear of loss. And I think that might be the thing that's separating the um, management class, so to speak, from the working class right now during this labor crisis. It's the same question every time. The more things change, they, you know, the more they stay the same. I've heard it said, and I never thought it, that phrase made any sense. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I think that's wrong. The more, no matter how much things change, you're always going to have some realities of life. You know, it's, there are just facts of life, and this is one of them. There are going to be management, there's going to be management, and there's going to be the workers. And this isn't a, conver this isn't a thing I usually talk about, but it's been weighing on my mind because, you know, I'm, I am one of those weird people who sort of falls in my ways. And it's like, yeah, this is, this is fine. No problem. I got other stuff I want to do, but as long as the job needs doing, I'm here to do it. That sort of thing. I don't know what that is. It could just be how I was raised, but I don't know if it's a good thing or not. In fact, I don't, I don't even want to make a judgment on that. But the big problem comes in when the management class starts asking questions like, should shop assistants marry? Should the workers even breed? Right? I mean, around this time, and G.K. Chesterton wrote about it a lot, um, around this time, eugenics was becoming a big thing. Um, especially in America, ironically enough. You know, we think we defeated the great eugenicists when we were harboring them in our midst um, back in the day. Uh, eugenics and trying to breed the Superman, but also trying to sort of um, I don't know, discourage breeding amidst the, uh, the profane, as they might call them, depending on what circle in which you run. Asking questions like that are so removed from the realities of human life, um, it could only come from a highly educated, highly removed person. Should shop assistants marry? Well, the answer to that is, are, are they in love? Are they good for each other? Then of course they should. Why wouldn't they? But when you're this creepy robot person at the very top and you're asking, oh, you've got a thousand people that you've got to manage, and it would just be better if you only had 700. You start asking these tough questions. How can I get rid of 300 people? And no one ever looks at you fondly for asking those questions. 
And no one would want to be in the same position as you where you have to decide. Um, at least nobody at the bottom, because they, the people at the bottom imagine that um, there really are these, I mean, believe me, there are par parasitic elites who do cause lots of problems and don't pay their workers enough, and they know it, and they should fix that. But there's also some people who just get stuck between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, right now, the way things are, the way things are looking out there is lots of people are stuck between a rock and a hard place. And it really does come down to the power of and the motivation of one's spirit about what should be done about this rock and this hard place. And lots of people just say, I'll do whatever. I can't afford to lose this job. And there are some people who are truly trapped by debt, um, college debt, car debt, house debt, child debt, whatever debt you have, you're, you're trapped. And that's your invisible handcuff, so to speak. You can't go anywhere. And if you do want to, you've got to start working outside of work. And you can only do that essentially at the mercy of your employer um, because you have to keep that going. And of course, you're not a god. You have to sleep. You have to eat. You got you to gotta have some time to rest your mind because if you don't, you'll go crazy and burn out and then you lose the job anyway. So managing that balance is really, really impossible. But I think with the, um, with the way the economic situation is right now with, you know, people at the very top, I mean, coming out of the last couple of years like bandits and the people at the bottom basically going broke. Um, that's a problem. And, I'm st and I begin to think, oh, yes, they should, if only we could print more money and then that doesn't solve a thing. We all know that's just, that's a good meme. Just money printer go brr. Doesn't work. We still need labor to make the world go around. But, you know, it's just one of those questions. Well, what should we do? Should shop assistants marry? Of course they should. My opinion, of course they should. Um, if they're right for one another, and if they really do love one another, then they should get married because it's good. It's good. Uh, and I'm, pardon me, I am beginning to hit my wall. Um, I, I am doing this after work when I usually go to bed, and it's about, it's about time. It's about time for that, but I'll wrap this up. Basically, with a labor shortage going on now, you're gonna, if you look around and you pay attention, you can see these old stories popping up again, you know, lords and serfs, and kings and lords, and emperors and kings, and all the way up to the top, you've got your Tower of Babylon, your, your pyramid of the Illuminati, so to speak, and it's the hierarchy of the world, and yes, it does, it does happen that way, but it seems that throughout history, there, there comes this time where there's a, there's a big turn in that wheel. I saw a funny picture recently. Somebody took um, a picture of the uh, pyramid of, like, one of the main pyramids in Giza and just photoshopped it so that it was upside down. It was standing on its point. And it looked so ridiculous, I saved it into my phone just because it was hilarious. And it shows that the more that this, this kind of inequality happens and the more that this topsy-turvy land sort of comes around, the more unstable it becomes and it will eventually fall over. Uh, and I don't know if it's preventable. I almost feel like it's just, it's just a part of life. It's almost a, it's almost a mythopoeic part of human civilization. Eventually the good have it way too good, not the good, but the, the wealthy, the privileged have it way too good and the working class have it way too bad. And there has to be some kind of a shakeup. And maybe that's the goal with this whole great reset thing. But for some reason, I don't feel like the people running that are interested in helping you and I. 
I just have suspicions. I mean, call me a conspiracy theorist, but I suspect that the rich, crazy uh, people wearing their special boy robes out there in Germany or wherever the hell who are talking about this great reset, I just, for some reason, I don't know if they're thinking about you in terms of another equal soul. I tend to think of, I tend to more fall along the lines that they think of you as an individual work unit or maybe a problem. And them taking the lead with this reset is uh, absurd. It's absolutely absurd. I think we should take the lead. I think, should shop assistants marry? I don't think that's a question for them. I think it's a question for us. And it's a question for our spirit. Should, I, should you keep working that job? Should you sacrifice your freedom and your ability to do what it is that you were born to do? Um, for those golden or silver or bronze or brass or even rusty handcuffs that you have, is it worth it? Ask yourself, should shop assistants marry? And remember that you're the shop assistant, or more likely than not. That's a question for you. That's what I think, anyway. And materialism as a, re you know, resulting in this sort of thing, I, I don't know if that's the whole picture, but again, um, we are talking about G.K. Chesterton here. He's a very, very devout Catholic. And he sees materialism as one of the primary evils of the modern world. And personally, I do too. I think being too attached to the stuff you have can really chain you down and prevent you from becoming all that you could be, right? And at the same time, you do have material needs, which is why I read from Weigand Pier, which is all about the problem of a system that prevents people from getting simply what they need, not even excess, right? But uh, it's interesting that people at the very, very top of all of this imagine somehow that um, people don't, they, they aren't struggling, they aren't having a hard time, you know, and I, I think that presents itself with the endless Zoom calls that they went through while me and my coworkers were out on a floor handling packages from all over the country, right? The whole time, the whole thing never, never once stopped completely. It was always ongoing. And meanwhile, the... Other people aren't coming into the office and they're on Zoom all day. And I've seen this in other places. I've seen this in a, in a lot of places that don't have a necessity for physical work. Um, for example, landscaping. <laughs> Do you, did the lawn stop getting mowed? Did, uh, how about the trash? Did it stop getting taken out? I mean, these, I don't know if these people are, these working people are invisible to those at the top who, you know, take selfies of themselves, um, you know, at home saying they're protecting lives and saving lives while the rest of the people are out there who never stop once working at Amazon, for example. They never once stop. I never had a package come late during the whole crisis. Never had anything come late. In fact, I had everything come on time and the service was faster than ever. How does that happen? How does that happen? When executives are talking to each other in uh, chat rooms or whatever the hell you call it, um, clubhouse talking about how much how how safe they got to stay and stuff like that it's like did the machine ever stop no who was running that machine hmm? we don't know should they marry you see how that sounds and i'm not bitter i'm just saying it's a question that we've faced before in the past and it used to be solved by the church it used to be solved by isms like socialism or capitalism, but all of these things based on, are based, good lord, all these things are based on material or spirit or vibe or whatever you want to call it. 
And I think that the um, the revolution that will come, and I don't mean in like, oh, the, the people are going to rise up and go hang the bastards. I mean, like, the, the change in our paradigm, the reality that I talked about, you know, a couple years ago, paradigm shift, uh, is that we all have changed how we think. Suddenly, it's very clear that not all is as it seemed, and that there are questions that have not been answered that desperately need answering. Um, and uh, the further we kick the can down the road, the more dangerous it's going to get for everybody, because we all need each other. I mean, I never want to run. I never want to want to run the place where I work, at least not not yet. It sounds like too much responsibility, too much too much to think about, too many things to worry about. I wouldn't want that job. And you know, I, it just reminds me. And I'll close. I'll close on this. It just reminds me of the word tyrant. Do you know where the word tyrant comes from? It comes from Greek, I believe. I believe it's Greek. Let's Google it. Let's find out. Let's just, before I make this point, tyrant etymology. Yes, Greek, Latin, Old French, Tyrannos. Um, the tyrant, the word tyrant sprang up from, I believe it was Athens. Um, tyranny didn't always mean there's a guy who's picking on you and giving you problems. Um, it came from uh, a time in the history of Athens, where there would need to be leadership, but the leadership was all corrupted, basically. So they had to pick somebody, some some worthy person from another class outside of leadership. And they would call this person the tyrant, because he was an illegitimate ruler, right? But the illegitimate ruler, this this tyrant, would come in and try to fix things up. And there's some great examples of this in history, and maybe one day we'll cover it. But the tyrant, the tyrant back then, he would do the job that the ruling class couldn't sort out for themselves, um, lead everything, hopefully back to back to back on track, get everything back on track, and then at the end of the tyranny, the tyrant would retire to his field and go back to what he was doing before. It was considered a, a citizen's duty to be open to tyranny, just to say back then it didn't have a negative connotation. Now it does. Um, but wouldn't it be better if we could find somebody who could understand both sides of these things and could end the squabbles between, right? It almost feels like a time when we would need a tyrant, doesn't it? It almost feels like a time when we do have tyrants, doesn't it? These people who, you know, want to tell us how to live our lives and how dumb we are and everything like that. We're, we're kind of like, wow, um, wouldn't it be great if one of us could get in charge? Hmm. Wouldn't it be good if we could get somebody who isn't of the chosen class that seems to run everything? Wouldn't we get better results if somebody understood what it is we're after? Well, that's probably a conversation for another day. And if you want to read further into this, you can pick up Wigan Peer. You can get a PDF for free. Um, it talks about all of this. And Orwell is, you know, very much split about this. I mean, he's basically a, an emissary between the work the working class and the upper class in this book he examines both their motivations and tries to find some way to help them understand one another and i don't think he was successful but i think he got close and it's all from a, a secular materialistic perspective um and if you you know i, I guess if you want a non-secular non-materialistic um, perspective on this i guess you could go read um the prince by machiavelli um 
where it's understood that there's a spiritual contract between um, the people and the king, or the prince, so to speak, that uh, has to be upheld or you will have revolt. And I'm. this is not like a, oh, we're on the teetering on the edge, oh, danger's coming. It's more like a, people are just not going to go to work. And if you want to solve the problem, you have to figure out what they're motivated by. And the more... <laughs> The more you try to force people or lure people in and then give them, you know, a crappy place to work, the more people you're going to have walking out the door. That's the reality of it. At least that's my perspective. And just this is just me trying to figure out how we could begin such a dialogue. And there's a lot of people who are bitter and cynical, and I know it. Um, but I think a lot of people are just in different kinds of handcuffs, but they're all in handcuffs. We're all, we're all sort of, our hands are tied. Can't, nothing can be done about it. You know, we can't just raise the pay five bucks an hour. That would put us out of business. Well, we've got to create value in our workplace some way, right? Maybe make it, maybe try to make it like more hospitable. You know, maybe instead of buying those cheap lights that flicker and give everyone a headache, you could splurge a little bit and get something that doesn't give everyone a headache. You know, like you're sitting in your cubicle. Could you imagine incandescent light bulbs instead of those fluorescent things buzzing above your head? It'd be a lot better, wouldn't it? How much more expensive would that be? Oh, but it's for the whole building. You don't understand. It's, well, do you, do you want to have a happy working force or do you want to have one that can give you two weeks and kick out the door? Easily. Well, we want that too. You know, if you got a crappy workplace, you want to be able to get out of there pretty easy. But, you know, it's like people just sort of lack the imagination to fix these problems. Like, you know, wouldn't it be great if, um, you know, I mean, you can come up with all sorts of ways you could improve things. And wouldn't it be great if, like, the, the office people didn't have to always be talking in BS language to try and tell us stupid workers how, how things are? You know, wouldn't it be great if they could be trained in effective communication so they can, you know, and not this sneering, like, we're all in this together crap? Couldn't they act like leaders again instead of pretending to be just one of the guys? You know what I mean? Like, of course, there's a place for that. But where is the leadership? Instead, we just have ranks. <laughs> no, you don't understand. In the office, they may salute the rank and not the man, but everywhere else, they salute the man. You understand. Your papers, your titles, and that sort of thing, they have no power when you walk outside of your office. Right? So instead of pulling rank and, and pretend to be one of the guys, how about you just own up and be a leader and do right by your people? And as a worker, how about you just understand that you want a good leader, you expect good leadership, and none of this crap that's just like all safe and, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want an anxiety box. I don't want to be anxious at work. How's that sound? You know what I mean? <laughs> Not that I get have an anxiety box at my workplace. My workplace is pretty good, all things considered. But there's a lot of people who have troubles. Yes, and people would be a lot less anxious if you paid them more, but they'd also be a lot less anxious if you had better leadership. Not just ranks, but leaders. And identifying good leaders and communicators is very difficult to do. But it's the vector we're going to have to follow, and I would recommend for a lot of people to follow. Find the leaders. Don't find the guy with the best resume. Find the leaders. The other stuff can sort itself out. You got peons in the office to do all that stuff. Get the leaders back. That's the only way forward. You need spirit at your company, in my opinion. My opinion, and hey, 
I'm just an idiot with a mic. But anyway, maybe I'll do more of these soon. I just, it felt like Christmas getting off work uh, at a normal time, so I just had to record something. So, there you go. That's that. I hope you enjoyed it. And probably in the future, I'll do more of these readings and commentaries as we go along. Um, but until then, until the next full episode of We Talk About Dead People, I hope this tides you over. <laughs>